when you focus so much on limited editions, no one buys the non-limited editions. It's like the non-limited editions are only there to sell limited editions. If you can't sell the regular stuff and you can only sell the limited stuff, you have a much bigger issue. If your mainstream stuff is doing fine and you want to go crazy with limited editions, okay. But like, if you can't sell your main stuff and you're relying on limited editions to sell, you're selling using gimmicks. That's bad. It's going to blow up on your face. And we've seen that happen to a lot of companies. Warning, this show is a limited edition. Limited introduction, limited number of downloads, limited knowledge, limited humour, and limited exposure to real life. Featuring a limited discussion about limited editions, the limits of watch media independence, very limited GPHG chat, tag, Brightling, G-Shock, and a limited amount more. Enjoy the show, a suitably limited amount. Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly, the ultimate antidote to all those other watch podcasts. This is it. This is where rubber hits road. This is where the truth is told. This is where we'll say the unsayable. Actually, we probably won't say the actual unsayable. We'll probably edit that out. But we do have David and Ariel who are well known to speak their minds. So, gentlemen, what is on your minds this week? Wow. You know, I <laughs> I was just thinking how much you love the competition. You listen to them so intently. You're the biggest <laughs> fan, you know. Know your competition. No, I actually like it. It's nice. You know, I think that you know, when I first started this space, I was like, oh, it'd be great if we could all be like colleagues and form a union and all that. And <laughs> it's like professional tennis and like watch journalists, you know, it's like the weirdest com competition. Like it's so heavy. I mean, David, you and I have been seeing this for years. Richard, you're a, a little bit newer to this, but like I'm wet behind the ears talking about people that would just kill people that they've seen for years and years and years just because they thought it would give them like some little edge somewhere right david yeah that's true i mean it, it's unbelievably and perhaps needlessly uh, competitive surprisingly so that's true and the the brands are the fault i i blame the brands because they do it on purpose they love the idea of the media fighting because media who cooperate is strong and is forced to be reckoned with they divided us and they weakened us and i'm telling it's it's a it's a specific strategy they're like now it's it's totally a strategy. They have all kinds of little strategies. And it's the strangest thing that we exist in a space where the industry needs media so much, yet cannot seem to have, uh, I guess it's lessening now, but traditionally very combative relationship. And as, as I said that, I'm realizing like maybe in the last year, they were just finally like, you know what? We kind of need those guys. There's still fights here and there, but like, I feel like the industry's finally just been like, you know what? You're here to stay now. Yeah. I wonder if the listening audience can tell that we may have been talking about other watch media prior to press. Record. <laughs> we never we, we ignore everybody we never talk we never talk about them yeah it's interesting because we were going to cover this a couple of weeks ago but we just never had time obviously watches and wonders is back there's been this new organization which they have put rolex chief executive at the top of as a foundation so clearly watch and wonders is now well it would appear to be here to stay at least in its format and at least with the brands that are going to be in it and before I actually ask a question, I'll also refer everybody to this week's superlative episode with Ariel and Astrid from Miss Tweed. Definitely a must listen. The kind of conversation you're going to listen to if you listen to this week's superlative episode is a kind of conversation that goes on 
and is normally not recorded. So that is one good reason why you should listen to it. Very interesting and very revealing conversation. But Ariel, give us your thoughts on what we're going to see from Watching Wonders next year. Is it here to stay? Are we going to see Swatch, Breitling, others that have so <laughs> far not been engaged in the process? Can we expect Moon Swatch Mark II to be released immediately before this year's Watching Wonders? It might be. I mean, there's a thing that everyone needs to realize, and there's a very practical limit to the number of watch brands you can see right like you can only be in geneva for so many days let's say a week and in those days you can only see so many brands so there's a very finite amount of companies that can show up before people like us are like listen guys we just can't see you all like we want to but there's you know 300 brands here and then we have you know 30 hours of time like we we can't do it so i think i don't know what that number is but i would say if we start to have to meet with more than about 70 or 80 brands. <laughs> I feel tired already. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. And I've done it. I've done it solo. 80 brands solo before it, in Basel World's past. But after that, it begins crazy. We know that the show's going to be about 50 brands in March when the next Watches and Wonders happens. And that doesn't count the little brands around town. Uh, there, was a, there was a corollary show that may or may not happen again. There's other brands. So let's just call those other brands another, you know, 25 brands. So that means there's there's going to be about 75 brands already there without the Swatch Group, you know, without, um, you know, Breitling and Richard Mille and Audemars Piguet and all that, which will take up more time. I think that's the limit. I don't think there can be any more. So what happens after that is like the refinement. But I fully expect several years of this being watches and blunders. <laughs> At least the COVID thing will be I guess not really a part of the next one. I mean, I feel like the world just collectively shrugged it off at this point. Remember mm -hmm. how last time, David, I don't know if you had to, but for us traveling back to the United States, we had to get tested. And that was a big overshadowing thing, right? Like we're not talking about right now, but the last Watches of Wonders was the first since the pandemic. And mm. there was a big question as to how much that would take up everyone's attention. I think that it's going to be even less for this next show, I think it's going to basically be like there is no COVID at all, except for the few remaining places that still require some testing and stuff like that. I know that China is probably still going to have their own watches and wonders, so we probably still won't see a lot of that. I think it's going to feel very similar to what we went to with more brands, hopefully a little bit more cohesive organization. Anyways, that's what I think. Well, interestingly, and I suppose this relates to COVID, uh, it will be interesting to see what happens because there are going to be, as I understand it, two public days. So the great unwashed watch-loving public is going to be invited in for two days. And AKA extras. They're just extras. Uh, yeah. <laughs> From listening to your interview with Astrid, it would appear kind of ironically that the driving force behind these public days might actually have been Rolex, Patek and Chopard. Now, putting aside Chopard for a minute, the fact that it's Patek and Rolex are the ones that want the public in the building and not Richemont who form the majority of the groups I think it's quite interesting especially as Rolex and Patek will have you know that'll be the closest you get to actually seeing Rolex and Patek so that'll be it you're not seeing it in the shops you'll just see them at Watches and Wonders well there's a lot of practical reasons remember this Basel World was a show that anyone could go to and Watches and Wonders is like SIHH where only invited people can go 
to actually have to decide who's invited, who gets a pass, all that is a whole thing unto itself. Richemont loves that. Other people don't. And I'm really thinking that the two public days isn't really about letting the public in there. It just means like two days where you don't have to have the, I don't know, the security or or the special regimented set of people who don't want to be with the unclean masses. It's for all those other meetings, for suppliers, for just general friends, you know, miscellaneous media that may have not got in before. There's been so much anger about, oh, I didn't get invited, da, 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 da. And I think that they're slowly losing that battle about who can and can't come. So right now we're in a compromise phase. Part of the show is still the invite-only party. And then two days is, you know, everyone. And that's, again, what I'm seeing happening. Yeah. So, David, are you looking forward to it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like Ariel said, you know, there's hopefully won't be any testing or any of the uh, any of those inconveniences like the mask and, and all that other stuff. This year it was okay, but I felt like it was kind of slow and careful. And I hope uh, that the energy will return. I will never forget those days when, when Baselwood would open and everyone was piling up at noon. I think it opened at noon or something like that. At all those gates and people literally run, like sprint towards the Rolex uh, stand to see the novelties and, <laughs> and literally nowhere else. They, they would run past all these other booths and people were interested about, you know, all those other novelties too. It's not that they didn't care, but everyone wanted to see uh, the uh, new thing with a new color on the basil. You know, so it's kind well, of... It was the only thing to run to. There was no other crazy surprises. Like, But you knew that you could run there. So it was like a great start to the show, like a ritualistic start. So even for the people that weren't going to post it right away, it was just sort of like a fun, weird thing to do. This week's Monday a Longer Reads called Is Anyone Listening? It's Jake's contribution to the editorial that comes out. And this is We Are At Our Limit with Unlimited Limited Edition Watches. So I think this is a quite a fun topic. The one I remember the most is the 50th anniversary Speedmaster where there was 6,969 and that was their limited edition number. I don't know whether they've even now all been sold. They probably have been, but it probably took quite a while. What do we think of limited editions? David, what number do you think qualifies as an actual limited edition? Um, I, I, I couldn't care less. Uh, I think <laughs> I, I think if you buy something just because it's limited, that's that's so unbelievably shallow. I mean, you know, there's there's so many things that could be limited in, in, in production, but they would not be any more interesting for it. Just because you rule others out, uh, you know, it should be limited because it's difficult to make. If it's hard to manufacture and it's difficult to scale up to mass production or whatever, maybe that has merit to it. Like, you know, Hublot can only make so many, you know, magic gold watches, like the, you know, the impossible to scratch gold. And that's because it's limited by production not because you know they slap a number on it maybe they will just so that everyone understands that it's actually rare but you know i think doing your research and finding stuff that was produced for a short period of time is much more interesting and and to that note to that end i feel like more brands should be doing what for example glossita original is doing which is that they've been producing some annual editions and i think that's really cool like oh okay here it is you have an entire year to get it and then it's gone and it also adds a sense of mystery to it like i'm not sure how many of these are made like maybe you can ballpark it or whatever and people and especially collectors love that stuff when it comes to cars for example like oh you know we don't know how many of these were made and then they start collecting serial numbers or win numbers or whatever so just because it has a number on it i, I think that that's really bad and to complete my rent i will go on and say that one of 1,500 is bad. It should be like the first, the second, the third, the fourth. 
you know, like some car makers have been have been found cheating with this, and you know, they would say one of 399, and they ended up making 100 or 150 more, if not many more than that, right? And because they thought they could get away with it, and in a way, well, you know, I guess they did. So just because something is limited, uh, you know, it should not make it any more interested. I also think they should ban zero, double zero, treble zero, quadruple zero, because I've seen that in hmm. the press pieces that are passed around, which eventually get sold or kept somewhere. You know, it's a limited edition of 300, so why am I holding the quadruple zero one? That means there's at least 304, if not 305 yeah, or right. more. So, uh, yeah, I think 300 is a decent number, but I'm curious, and I did hear this. I don't know whether it was one of you that told me this. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. That actually the real driving force behind limited editions is not actually the brands. It's the authorized dealers, because for them, it just makes it so much easier to make the sale to the non-watch geek by saying, oh, here is this Nomos glass hoot or this Seiko. And by the way, it's there's only 10,000 of these in the world, because actually <laughs> the uneducated person who's just going in to buy a single watch is never going to collect a lot of watches or her has a look at this and suddenly the salesman closes the deal by going oh by the way these are difficult to get hold of and it's actually the ad's that really drive the existence of limited edition numbers on watches that simply should not have limited they're never going to make more than ten thousand of them they just happen to have chosen to tell you that well you're right that's that's true in a large way and i think the bigger context is why are there so many limitations because brands think that they can sell either because they actually do or they're just trying to increase their odds uh, you're talking about a very conservative group of people that want to make a return on their investment investing in the production of watches of any run even if it's just a few pieces is very expensive I and mean, it can be a terrifying thing as an entrepreneur now if you're a big brand i guess you know better you don't need to do that i guess my first question is let's say they kept the practice exactly as is but stopped using the term limited edition, like they were still numbered, da, 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 but they stopped mentioning it as overtly. My question for you is what would that change for you? Would you feel like problem solved or does the problem still exist? I mean, I think the problem is multiple. It's on the one hand, kidding folk on who don't know any better that this thing is rare because they say it's a limited edition. Now, as David says about cars, they'll say that cars are limited edition, but they won't tell you how many? So maybe there's an aspect of that. People should just be saying it's limited production for a year as a better practice. If folk just didn't make a big deal about it, I mean, Tudor's Black Bay Harrods edition is limited edition. They are numbered in such a way that you can tell roughly how many they've made, but it's not overt. It's not one of. They're just going to keep making them until they get bored of selling them, probably, or till they move the model on. So there's that kind of element whereby it's got an individual serial number on it and you can kind of go along like a train spotter, collect the serial numbers. There are those brands, Seiko I think is probably the worst offender. Oh yeah. Omega are probably not that far behind, although Omega have stopped doing largely i think mm -hmm. probably the 50th anniversary moon watch was probably the last one they made a really big deal of that it was just a ridiculously large number for a limited edition so if if seiko would just stop talking about limited editions that would probably help it would probably make you feel like it wasn't quite such a mistreated type of language when you hear other brands going this is one of 300 actually now that i think about it on the other hand micro brands are also guilty of this 
So on the one hand, you've got the really big brands producing ridiculous numbers of watches and calling them limited editions. You've also got micro brands saying, yeah, this is one of a hundred. That micro brand was never going to make more than a hundred of these for pure cash flow reasons of nothing else that's good so trying to sell it on the basis that this is one of a hundred well mate you're probably not going to make a hundred of them because you're probably not going to sell a hundred of them and you're making a hundred of these because that's the number of movements that your movement agent who's selling you the Salita SW200s would give you it's a kind of forced limited edition but you happen to be trying to use it as a marketing ploy I mean good luck to them but I think there's just so many reasons why people use the limited edition catchphrase. I, I don't think there is a solution. I, I, it's probably not the sort of thing that needs a solution. It's probably just the sort of thing we like moaning about more than anything else. And why not? Because, you know, it's luxury. It doesn't really matter. Okay, so, I mean, all the things you said are true and salient and part of this discussion, but I'll go back to the original question. Does that change it for you, right? Like, are you annoyed because they're trying to say that something is special, that it's not special, or it's at yeah. the very least deceptive? Or do you just want them to make an unlimited amount? I guess that's, for me, the interesting question is, what do you want done about it exactly? I think there is an element of deception in some regards, whereby watch brands are trying to kid on the consumer that it is limited edition, or that they've changed anything from what they would normally produce. You know, they, they put a pink dial on it, call it limited edition, say they're going to make a thousand of them. But the reality is the standard blue dial, they only made a thousand of them as well. They just didn't shout about it. So I think consistency, stop using it as a pure marketing ploy. Use it as what David says. It's limited edition because it's difficult to make. I think that's quite a good strategy. Your SW200 dive watch is not difficult to make. So just make as many of them as you want to sell and let that be the end of it. Yeah, and, and I want to talk about the other side of it, which is sort of the market effect that this has. I didn't realize this for a long time. And, and again, I think that it's very true to suggest that these watches are made because they help sell. And I've heard a lot of lay consumers out there be like, you know, this is a limited edition. Like, people love that. They really, really do. But what it's led to... You wouldn't do it if it didn't work. Yeah, exactly. But it's led to this very interesting phenomenon where especially in the speculator market, and this is where it gets really bad, people buy watches out of this excitement that it's limited. And again, they're sold. These are limited. These go up in value. People come in here all the time wanting to get the old ones and I have to turn them down, da, 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 da. Okay, you do that enough times and you set the expectation that this is a desired, in-demand, you know, thing. And when that happens, eventually people are going to try to like, you know, cash out. They're going to be like, okay, you keep telling me how valuable this is. Well, you know, where's my money now? And what happened with the speculator market and the sort of limited edition thing is people were led to believe that these are investments. And what they suddenly did is buy watches that they didn't want to wear, but they were trying to resell it. It flooded the market. Many instances now, right after there's a limited edition or hot release, within the first day, you start to see watches being pushed up on Chrono 24 and stuff like that, maybe on eBay to a degree. You see this practice happening, and this is a direct result of people purchasing watches they don't want to wear. This leads yep. to the exact issue that limited editions were meant to solve, which is an alleviation of the overproduction, right? They're just making too many watches. So what do they end up doing, Seiko, is just started making <laughs> so many limited editions, you like, I guess you kind of solved the problem of having more Speedmasters than anyone wants. Now you have more Speedmaster choices than anyone wants. And 
that's, I think, a real issue. And I think one of the biggest issues, and Omega has seen this for sure, is when you focus so much on limited editions, no one buys the non-limited editions. It's like the non-limited editions are only there to sell limited editions. And that's preposterous <laughs> because it's, it's wrong. If you can't sell the regular stuff and you can only sell the limited stuff, you have a much bigger issue. And I think that that's where these companies need to have the ultimate sense of, you know, holding back a little bit. And that is if your mainstream stuff is doing fine and you want to go crazy with limited editions, okay. But like if you can't sell your main stuff and you're relying on limited editions to sell, you're selling using gimmicks. That's bad. It's going to blow up on your face and it, there's going to be a problem. And we've seen that happen to a lot of companies. So there you have it. Yeah, very good point. Are you familiar with Terry Pratchett? Of course, of course. Many books, many books. I think his thing was always that actually the unsigned copies of his books were actually more valuable than the signed copies because he reckoned he'd signed so many. And that's kind of, as you're saying, in the limited edition. There are so many limited editions that actually the non-limited edition becomes the rarer model. So there you go. Everybody's hanging around waiting for the next limited edition Speedmaster, but the one that actually you should be buying is just a standard one because nobody buys that. We have some new stuff in the A Blog to Watch shop, and that got me thinking just, again, in light of your conversation with, with Astrid, Miss Tweed, Ariel, about watch media independence. And this doesn't at all relate to anything we may have been talking about before we press record either. But I think it's important to emphasise how everybody makes their money. And we did record a little while ago about the fact that we don't sell watches. We love you all buying watches. Buy as many limited <laughs> editions as you like. Just don't buy them from us. Buy them from a watch store, from an AD that you get an AD experience or direct from the brand. Don't you dare buy any watches from us. Don't buy watches from media. You know, we're media. We're supposed to report on things. We want to buy watches together with you. You know, like we're the yes. people who want to go with you to the store and sit next to you and give you good advice. We don't want to turn around and be like, well, I have just what you need, sir. Like, that's not who we want <laughs> exactly. to be. We'll, we'll tell you about the thing we're reviewing. And by the way, did you know we sell that? Now, we do sell stuff. We sell lots of stuff. And we've got a new artist that's being covered. David, do you want to tell us a little bit about Ink Dial? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great addition to the store. I was so stoked to reach out to him, to find him in the first place, reach out. He's a super humble, hugely talented guy who's worked with a number of major brands, IWC, Jager, Casio, and a number of others on, on specific artwork to go with, uh, with their products. And of course, he's an independent artist as well, who's produced a number of these high contrast, very like high action type of, of drawings. Uh, you know, they are a completely different style to Tomasz, the uh, artist with whom we've started the store. So if you visit store.blogtowatch.com, you will find two very different watch artists. And we are selling their prints on their behalf. So what happens is that we are, we are trying to connect these amazing artists with our amazing audience and, and, and make these connections. And to be honest with you, uh, Tomasz's artworks has, have been incredibly popular, super feedback from all over the world. And you know, to start with Ben, i.e. Ink Dial, as a complimentary artist to Tomasz, I think that's, that's amazing. So the two guys have a very different style but they both uh, combine the watch as a subject and the subject matter or the inspiration of the watch itself. So it could be anything, right? So, so you just have to go there and, and browse these literally dozens of artworks and their high quality prints. I, I'm, I'm just stoked and excited to, to be able to feature these two amazing artists as opposed to, like you say, sell watches that everyone else is selling. So again, this is, this is a, an excellent way 
to support two excellent guys who've uh, put their entire livelihood into the art that they are selling and they're producing. So yeah, I think that's just amazing. Yeah, so go and check out their blog to watch store. Just go to the website and find the store and do have a look at buying some of these uh, prints and other bits and pieces we've got on there, t-shirts, watch pouches, etc., etc. But you will not find any watches for sale because that's not what we do. We are independent. So if you want an independent voice in podcasting and media, then do keep on listening. Ariel, got anything else to say on the matter? I'm going to be silent here. I mean, I've talked about <laughs> this for a very, very long time. I believe that there needs to be a trinity of companies at the minimum for this industry to work. And that is people that make watches, people that sell watches, and people that talk about watches. I think that's sort of a necessary part of the equation. There are communities today which create conversations about the hobby. Those conversations leads to people entering the hobby and creates a journey in the hobby. And then there's going to be those companies that sell the watches and that make the watches. It's kind of similar to like cars. It's like imagine if the car magazine sold you cars. People would be like, that makes no sense. It's the same type of thing. Companies that have gone into selling watches that have started as media have done so because they've had to out of a feeling of not knowing how else to make money because what we do is difficult and challenging and that is a real thing and they have not done so because that was their goal from the beginning um, so I think it's very very important to emphasize that what we do is what what they want to be doing and we're having more fun yep glad you remained silent there and didn't give us another paragraph for yeah subject. yeah yeah well done well done Let's talk about your second favourite thing, Ariel, which is GPHG. Now, we're not going to focus on this because I'll just get <laughs> shouted at. <laughs> but GPHG Awards happened and it got me thinking very briefly about the stitch up that is generally watch awards that are as... I mean, how you can have a watch awards and Swatch Group aren't there... Richemont aren't there, Rolex aren't there, Patek aren't there. It just makes no sense to me. And it's all sort of self-nominated and self-aggrandizing. I'm, I'm sure it's a lovely event. I've never been. I'm unlikely to get invited now. But it got me thinking about what real categories there should be for real watch awards. And if I was ever to manage to persuade Ariel to do a, a blog to watch weekly watch awards, then what would you suggest Ariel and David as actual proper categories? I've made it very clear that I wouldn't do it based upon watches. I think that's the wrong thing. It's it's highly a matter of taste. It's extremely subjective. That's one of the reasons I take very little stock in what they do, because the things that are worth awarding are not that I've always said it's it's maybe a marketing campaign, maybe it's some decision that they made, but you're trying to make a satisfying awards out of things that are just all these it's 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 just it's 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 a mishmash of things. It's it's very randomized. It's sort of like these are our friends and some of them are going to get trophies and the other ones are going to get merely recognized and everyone's going to have a good time. It's an industry party that the industry puts on for itself. It more or less rewards itself and if you participate as a sponsor or whatever, I don't know, you get an award or something like that. I I really don't know the details. I have <laughs> been asked to participate. You know what what turned me off was and they're like, okay, your job now is to come up with all the nominees. Just, you know, on your spare time, think about all the rid ridiculous categories that don't make sense, like the little hand, and just come up with everything. So then what do you do? You sit there and you're like, okay, well, uh, I'm either going to write about the watches I like personally, subjective taste, or the ones I've been working with lately or my friends. So I don't know, corruption, what do you call it? Or just what's popular. <laughs> 
But the idea that there's like this agency was like, we've taken all the new watches and we're submitting them is wrong. It's just based upon people with an agenda, basically just coming up with their buddies and voting for their buddies and being pressured by their buddies. Like, you're going to vote for me, right? Like this happens all the time. And you see some of the same people time and time and getting getting awards and everyone likes to get award. And that's fun. My conclusion is that it has very little impact for the consumer. Like if a watch gets an award, does that mean it's perfect? No. If it doesn't get an award, does it mean it's bad? No. Like it doesn't really have an effect on whether or not a watch is great or not. They, they tend to be decent watches, but they're pretty conservative and there's no real surprises there. So it's like fine, but it's not the be and end all of well, anything. Do you genuinely think that actually a better scenario would be, you know, what was the marketing campaign of the year or the website of the year or something like that focused away from the actual nitty gritty of do you like this watch over this other watch in this category? That actually there's something more broad to be spoken about and, and recognized within the space. I've written plans for my own awards. I don't want to give it all away. I think that there's a very rewarding way of doing something like this. I think that you'd have to change a couple of key things. For me, an award is supposed to recognize best practices so that other people do it. And I think one of the most interesting failures of this award is it doesn't seem to recognize any particular behavior that someone's like, oh, people like stuff like that, I should do more of that. Like that doesn't come as an outcome. Like you don't know what to recognize. So like that was popular, I know that, why? No freaking clue. And so I think <laughs> it's difficult to learn anything either as the industry or as a consumer from from these awards. And, and, and that's another problem I have. David? Your suggestion for a watch award? Or are you equally as uh, oh, uh, not bothered? I uh, just yawn. It's, That'll do no, it. it's not a yawn. It's like <laughs> there's sirens outside and also in my head. Uh, I think it's it's a great <laughs> thing that, that the watch industry has a posh event where everyone can go and, and smile and, and, and create this whole thing. I, I feel like this is necessary in a way, one way or another. But if you look at the Oscars and you know it's a, it's a shambles of most of the time it's it's you know it's not really the last few years have not been about big galas and people dressing fancy and congratulating one another when the world is going down in a fiery spiral basically so uh, I understand that the optics are difficult to manage but I also uh, agree that you know to some of these you know companies it's a great marketing tool they can say like okay we've won an award and the substance of that award gets lost in in all the noise that you know like not everyone is as hardcore a watch enthusiast as we are and yet they buy watches and that's all good in the same way how we buy cars and not everyone is a car enthusiast like that and so they see okay it's the best car of like whatever a year or, or whichever award right do you care the, you know about the substance of the best engine award no you don't you don't know who's giving that why who chose the jury and whatever you just say this one has an award and the other one does not and of course brands are eager to take part in that so that part i understand i also agree with Ariel that there could be a lot more substance injected to this and there could be greater transparency and it could be more related to something that would help improve the greater industry and its product as opposed to just something that is a cause for celebration. Excellent. Well, I'm going to quietly off air push Ariel to review his hand about what awards we should be doing. Good week, bad week. A couple of contenders for this. Well, I think it was a good week for Jacob & Co. I don't know if you've seen this. Jacob & Co. is building a record-breaking skyscraper in Dubai. A slightly ridiculous concept, but, you know, 
it's certainly in keeping gentlemen have you seen this yeah i got the news from jacob and company myself and it was like there's this new i guess it was a it's a large residential tower in dubai and they're gonna have uh they're like i don't know they're they're a, te- they're a tenant in there i guess and they're gonna have a space in the name and look i mean it's a space in dubai to sell watches and jacob wanted to get a little bit out of it i didn't know people were doing this in dubai anymore it's like sometimes you know you love it's like it's a company like horribly out of touch or on trend you never have any idea with stuff like this right like dubai was a while ago but is it coming back i don't know is jacob and company onto something or they just you know have reason to have an office there and decided for tax purposes to write a a press release you know i'm not really sure what it is it could be anything with them but you know having still had the fresh memory of being on a jacob event this is a company that has money dubai market is a very good market for watches like that Pretty much all the Dubai Watch Weeks I've get I've been to, Jacob himself has been there. The people there love him. So I wouldn't say this is like developing a new market. This just seems to be investing more in a good market. I mean, I'm looking forward to the opening night. It will be a good party if nothing else. So, uh, <laughs> but just a, a bit of a peculiar idea to as a partnership. But yeah, best of luck to them. Uh, bad week probably goes to the London Stock Exchange because this week the London Stock Exchange lost its place as the preeminent European stock exchange and it lost it to the French largely Ouch. due to LVMH Group and its uh, continued growth. Uh, China, they seem to be reporting, is making a little bit of a comeback and that is really boosting share prices in the luxury industry which is largely traded on the French Stock Exchange. Are we hearing anything in and around LVMH Group and what's happening there? Yes, we will have some news this month in November about something interesting that they're doing related to watchmaking. They are flush with cash right now. They are investing. They are serious. I do not think they want to go buy any more brands right now. I think that the era of buying brands is done for the most part. I think brands are going to go into divestment, such as Gerard Perigo and Ulysses Nardon becoming independent from caring. So I think that there's more of that. LVMH purchased Tiffany and Company really hasn't done anything public with that yet. We know that there's a lot of things coming. We know that there are bits and pieces they need to work on. Hublot, for example, needs a bit of creative juices and things like that. They run very well, but they need a bit of creative juices. So we know that that's that's something. There's a huge amount of activity obviously going on all the time at Tag Heuer. So I think that that is probably going to continue in, in large part. So I would say that there's a lot going on over there and we're going to see a lot of activity this is the time for LVMH to do stuff. So we don't expect an imminent Patek buyout then? You think that no longer... I don't know if it ever was on the cards. It was obviously rumoured. It's a vanity purchase. Who who wants to buy something like that? It's not... That's not a wise purchase by any means. Like how... Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, how is that a wise purchase? Like, to make money with that, you have to... You know, like, like, you don't buy a company because you want the profits it has. You buy a company because of what you think you can do with it, how big you think you can grow it and stuff like that. So you'd have to buy Patek Philippe, just like you'd have to buy Richard Mille or whatever, with the idea of growing the business. I don't know that that's doable. Patek Philippe still has a problem selling Calatravas, right? Like it, it, it's still, it's got a couple of good things, but I wouldn't call it like a well-diversified brand that is able to do all this stuff. It has real challenges, I think, out there in terms of longevity. And can they run it as a family-run business where they get to make, you know, little one, one-off decisions one at a time in private? 
private, take as long as they need, sure. But in sort of a more corporate owned environment, would any of that stuff be possible? I would be very hard pressed to see something like that work. And the final bad week for me is a British MP. I sent you the article. This is Gillian Keegan, who was interviewed on Sky talking about food banks while wearing her £10,000 Rolex diamond encrusted uh, wristwatch. So, you know, kind of got to know your audience. Is that something which is frowned upon in your neck of the woods? Frowned upon? I suppose it's more frowned upon when you've got a government that's doing such a terrible job and everyone's just lining up to give a kicking. You're, you're just giving it low-hanging fruit, talking about poverty while wearing a very expensive wrist watch as the person who's in charge so it's just not a good look i don't know if i was in line at a food kitchen i want to mm-hmm. be served by the person as a rolex you know they might have the best <laughs> taste they spend a little bit extra time on the prep they might be more generous with their spoonful you know i think we found our new category for the blog to watch weekly wrist awards which is <laughs> what wristwatch would you like your server at the local food bank to be wearing rolex <laughs> really no no watch at all really scares me <sighs> i i will i will be served by if you have a watch that's 50 percent of the way there right okay so anything yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right okay i'm not sure what the most what's does anybody make well i, I do recall call what was the brand there was a brand that made a watch whereby it had like a steak timer on it the bezel you could rotate and it represented rare medium rare well done etc so oh. you could time your steaks and there's obviously been a couple of coffee watches what food kitchens do you go to where there's steaks <laughs> okay uh, let's let's confess that's <laughs> not gonna be that food kitchen there's there's also coffee watches brew obviously yeah. have done them but there was a there was a big brand recently did one was it who was it somebody oh singer i think it was singer singer that's who it was it was singer yes Yes, it was the There's... cappuccino timer or something, wasn't it? It's called the Singer Flytrack Barista or Barista Edition. The barista. All right, okay. And there, there you go. there's on um, a lot of out of order watches, sort of lower priced Italian company. They have a spaghetti timer. How long it takes to cook spaghetti? <laughs> okay, so if you see any of them <laughs> anywhere, then uh, do let us know. If you want to get in touch with the show about anything, then it's podcasts at a blog to watch we do like to hear from you any nominations guys for good week bad week anybody you've noticed having a particularly good time of it or otherwise as far as bad week is concerned i've seen you know two posts have come my way about large collections of watches being stolen last week we covered that happening with archie luxury and now two other huge collections that were shared in, in instagram yeah. stories and stuff really yeah like 70 watches like stolen in, in, but all of them like super high and like long is and stuff and another story came my way like which was exactly the same thing so if you have 70 watches all super expensive at home and you also post on instagram live whenever you travel away from home i suggest that you do something about that just to guarantee the uh, the safety of your collection yeah this was uh, i think the one collection you're referring to was horolson mm. i think is how he pronounces instagram and yeah it was an absolutely massive collection debethunes ALSs, yeah. all sorts so yeah actually quite shocking terrible is there something to be said about maybe an end to the show off culture like hmm. i show off watches because they're cool but i don't show off my watches there's a part of the culture which says look what i have look what i have look what i have and i think at some point that is going to be greeted with a no it's mine now 
You know, so I yeah. there's part of this is yes, there's I mean, obviously it's criminal behavior, it's wrong, it's horrible and things like that. But is it something that you can actually effectively protect against? Like, yes, you can have crazy security and hide. But if you are in the business of showing off what you have, I feel like it's a matter of time before someone out there is just going to be like, stop rubbing in my face. I'm going to take it now. Hmm. I don't know what the solution. I mean, as I posited last week, the Scottish solution was just own one watch. But there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, hey, guys, check out what I got. Just, you know, it's a Tuesday and they got a quarter million dollar grand complication here. Someone just brought it to me. Like, it's very, they do a very casual kind of laws that like just so relaxed like you know it's all bs like people buy into this and these people are going to be targeted and there's a lot of that going on and i'm not i feel sorry for them for sure that should not be something they have to worry about but i'm just saying maybe a slight moderation and how some people talk about their luxury possessions on social media could be in order we have a little bit of last week's show this week. We have the concluding part of the Casio refurb. So here is the quick audio following up from Michael as to how his G-Shock restoration adventure ended. Hi guys, it's Michael from Pittsburgh checking back in with an update on the vintage G-Shock I sent into Casio as part of the U.S. restoration program. As you may recall, I sent in a DW5200 watch from 1987. It was functional, clean condition, and the process at Casio took about two weeks from the date they received it to the date I got the watch back. It cost $100 plus shipping. I received the watch back this week, fully restored in a commemorative box, and it looks fantastic. They cleaned it up a bit. The new bezel and strap are perfect, and it really takes me back to this period in the late 80s when I wore this model every day. I think the program is still open to U.S. customers. I think it runs through November 30th on the website. So if you have one of the eligible models, I highly recommend the restoration process. It's a great way to bring these watches that hold so many memories for us back to life. Thanks again for letting me join in. Love the show and have a great day. Take care. So Michael seems to have been very impressed with it. I assume you gents haven't had the opportunity to avail yourself of the service from G-Shock yet? I had a new thought about it, though. Oh, go on then. Well, I recognize that chemically speaking, a lot of these older watches will, just by virtue of time, have disintegrated. So Casio has an incentive to make sure that the watches don't disintegrate. And so they're basically kind of maybe testing how we can deal with this and sort of a cheap restoration service probably politically sounds better than a, yeah, we'll replace your disintegrating case for you. I'm not saying that's going on, but just knowing that I know about the chemicals they used during certain eras, I imagine the old cases, a lot of them are in various stages of uh, tactile fragility. Good. Oh, well, if you've got an old G-Shock, go to the blog to watch website and you can find out whether you can take part in this restoration program. First watch up, and the thing is, I know we'll be listening, Sylvain from Breitling, but we are going to review, because we're not afraid, we're not in the pockets of of Big Watch. I actually liked it. The You know what, I actually did too, but I don't want it to seem like I'm sucking up to Breitling. But the Breitling debuted a trio of Premier B21 Chronograph Tourbillon watches. I think possibly the main question I would pose it to Sylvain, and we should get him on to ask him, is where do they think the demand for a Breitling Tourbillon was coming from is this a we're doing this to show that we can there seems to be quite a number of brands recently omega with the chiming watch that makes no sense christopher ward with the chiming watch that makes slightly more sense and breitling producing a tourbillon whereby it's watch brands kind of showing wait a minute we can do more than you think you know about us this is you know actually just 
putting their elbows out in the watchmaking department. So is that what it's really about? Is this just them getting their elbows out to go, wait a minute, we've, we, can, we can compete with the best of them at the real high end on the basis of that kind of trickles down and brand recognition to the, the bulk sellers that they, that they retail more generally? I think you might be overthinking it. You answered your question actually earlier <laughs> when we're talking about limited editions. You're like, why do people make these things? Well, the retailers. The retailers ask. The retailers want something elaborate and expensive they can sell because that demographic is amongst the most insulated from the recession. People who spend, you know, this, I think this was actually like, I don't know, 60 thousand dollars or something like that, I don't remember. But the people that spend that money on watches are far more insulated from the recession than people that spend, you know, maybe $6,000 on watches. And if you're looking for a, a group of people that you want to sell to that, you know, you think is going to be able to afford it now, that is not a terrible price point, to be honest. So I think a lot of it is just sort of the practicality that they can. There's demand for it. I also think that you're right. This is not exactly like a top priority. So maybe there was a downtime. Maybe there was a little bit less models coming out and they're like, what's been on the back burner for a while that's a little bit, you know, less production, lower risk, but you know, something to come out with this, which is cool. So you know that they always have a bunch of watches that are in, you know, various stages of ready to, to be launched. This might represent that there is, you know, a gap in the news uh, or the production cycle, you know, so to say for them. So I think that a lot of it is probably more related to that type of thing than people sitting around being like, and they said we couldn't make tourbillons anymore. How dare they? We'll show them. Like, <laughs> I think ego is a lot less of it at Breitling right now. I think it's a great looking piece for sure. You know, from what I've heard, you know, Breitling seems to sell with these. And speaking of limited editions, I think it's here where they go really low in the production number and say, okay, these are actually going to be truly exclusive and limited in their availability. You know, when they're gone, they're gone. And it's not the main thing for Breitling, but if you do the math, if you multiply the price by the production number and you consider the fact that they are selling all of them, I think it's a cool little uh, branch of the of the company. It adds to the, to the image of Breitling in the sense that yes, it's complicated. It's even more expensive, so it's a halo product of sorts. And they tie it in with the previous executives and owners of Breitling. So the three different versions are named after the three different Breitlings. So I think it's, uh, you know, that's a, a little cheesy, but, you know, for, for a product at this price, I think that that kind of goes. And again, it's no longer a 48 gazillion millimeter, you know, obnoxious thing, you know, for Bentley or whatever, which they, you know, they have done for years, which were hilarious and, and impressive in their own way. It's, it's more stylish and more elegant. So kudos for that. I think it's, it's good that it exists. I'm not going to go to sleep uh, tonight uh, dreaming about owning one of these, but again, it's, it's good that they are out there. It's also 100 meters water resistant. Okay. That was quite interesting. So you can dive with your tourbillon. That's something. So there you go. If that's what you've always wanted. I mean, it's got a leather strap. That's all I ever Probably wanted. Probably not going to work for you. <laughs> I just thought of a great tourist resort. We're going to call it Tourbillon Lagoon. Okay. And a bunch of these tourbillons are down there and you have to dive to try to find them. So Jacob oh. & Co's next uh, outing, one, they sponsored a building. You know how they've got that islands in the shape of the palm tree? Is that in Dubai? The palm, yeah. We need the Breitling Bay Dive Resort Tourbillon Lagoon. Tourbillon Beyond Lagoon. Yeah, only access exclusive to people with tourbillons. You know, that's that's the only way you can access a tourbillon lagoon. <laughs> you can't swim in these waters unless you have a whirlwind on your wrist. Exactly. <laughs> we will have Sylvain on again shortly. And before he disclaims himself as not speaking for Breitling in any way whatsoever, we'll actually ask him about this next time he's on the show. 
We had a bit of a chat about LVMH Group and how they have increased the value of the French stock market to the extent that it's now bigger than the London stock market. So the question is, this Tag Heuer, Carrera, Chronograph, Tourbillon, Polychrome watch, is this going to increase LVMH Group's share price any further? It's a pretty looking watch. I understand it even less than the tourbillon from Breitling before. It seems to just be like like a couple of weeks ago, it was like chiming watch week. We seem to be in tourbillon watch week this week. Well, there's a holiday. Turbionica is coming up, you know? <laughs> Turbionica. <laughs> <laughs> Not only me inventing tourist results, we're inventing religious experiences. Buy, buying a watch should be that way, shouldn't it? Is that right? All right, okay, yeah, yeah. We could do that. Some sort of cult. I think this is also water resistant to 100 meters. I could be wrong. It, it belongs. Is. It is. It yeah, belongs yeah. in the bottom yeah, of a Turbion Lagoon, yeah. But it's listed as one of 150, so it immediately loses marks on the, if you're going to do a numbered limited edition, tell me what number it is, scale. You're going to have to spend more than the... Uh, $25,000 if you want individual numbers. Come on, cheapskate. <laughs> <laughs> this is basically half the price of the Breitling. Is it half as much watch? I mean, the first thing that either of these companies would do would look at you and be like, different markets. And that's a funny thing. I mean, the Turbion is just like a, it's a fun symbol. I love the Hoyer O2T Turbion movement. This is a automatic, very accurate Turbion with a chronograph. You have a real sports watch with a tourbillon and, you know, what you don't get is hand finishing. This one has, you know, that plate, which has that electric treatment in various colors. So it's got that kind of like rainbow iridescent look, which I think Zenith, sister company, sort of started to get popular. I think the rainbow theme, which is this is definitely part of, is going to continue for a long time. And I predicted this before, but, you know, the sort of rainbow watch in its various forms are going to continue to be something which is going to captivate our minds. This is a evolution on it where you look at it and you don't say rainbow, but of course there's a bunch <laughs> of different colors. It's friendly in that way. It's hard to think about a time where you'd actually like spend the money on something like this unless you just had oodles of cash lying around. But like, I genuinely admire anyone wearing these. I think they're very cool. Likewise, I think it's just more colors than watches and we've been saying that for years and now it's happening. So any form that takes, uh, you know, I, I take it. That's all. Very succinct, sir. And that's all there is to say. Yeah. So go and check out Ripley's article on the website of this tag hoyer. Is it like a carbon material? What's the material there? It's like yeah, a carbon. It's a it's a it'll be some it'll be some plasticky thing with carbon and other bobbins. You know what kills the watch? It's the strap. Nothing's wrong with the strap, but you have it's such a missed opportunity. You have this case with this kind of organic, you know, carbon, you know textured to it this kind of colorful dial and then you just have like a standard black strap it's comfortable it's got the kind of alligator the rubber lining so i'm sure it's great but like i feel that 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 could have spruced this up a lot good oh well go and have a look see what you think it is certainly a continuation of the rainbow theme particularly from lvmh group it was all the pantone stuff that zenith have been doing uh, recently i think i prefer the pantone look to the oil slick look it just it just reminds me a bit too much of tie-dye t-shirts, and that's somewhere in my 1980s fashion I don't want to return to. I can't get over seeing the funny little face on the dial. It does look like a kind of... It's, it is one of these... You know, you can't unsee it once you see it. it for yeah. me, it look, in these colours, it looks like, like a really weird tropical fish. 
Yes, <laughs> eats tourbillons in the Tourbillon Lagoon. <laughs> if there's one thing I don't understand is why, why is it that within LVMH they seem to they seem to find like a recipe that works and then they can't keep themselves from applying the same thing across all their brands except for Bulgari. You know, like this Pantone or this Rainbow thing, it worked great on the Zenit. And so now obviously it has to be on an integrated bracelet or strap or whatever, Tech Hoyer. And then it's going to, uh, I'm sure Hublot has done something like this already and will make many more. So it's like this pattern that, that applies to all these brands. And I remember a number of years ago when the verification of all three brands was happening between Hublot, Zenit and Tech Hoyer, and you could put together like a, a, a montage of three watches, all of them with the exact same look. And, you know, people were not that thrilled about because, you know, that when it's so specific, usually it applies to one brand that owns that look. And sure, you can apply the same thing to other brands and sometimes it works. And I'm not saying there's only one brand that should make an integrated bracelet watch, it's nonsense. But here, for example, where it's so specific, where it's like this chromatic look or this rainbow, acidic, you know, chemical look, why, why not just, you know, just have Zenit keep that and just, just do it. But now it's an attack Hoyer. I really don't understand that. You don't understand fashion, do you, David? I don't, apparently not. <laughs> if, that's a, if that's your metric for it, I, I'm clueless. It's about all deciding on what the color is going to be, yes. and we all do it. We, could, we can't all fail. The consumers have to buy something, don't they? <laughs> that's the mission statement of the year. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, go and check out that article uh, on the website now. I fully think the Tag Heuer link is going to be what they transform into their integrated bracelet watch. Mm. Right, okay. So okay. Uh, explain and expand. Well, you were just talking about everyone's going to have their integrated bracelet watch. Zenith has yep. enough of them. And the link is that for Tag Heuer. The current mm -hmm. generation one isn't a sales extravaganza or anything like that. And if they're going to make their a le a legitimate integrated bracelet watch, it doesn't feel like a Me Too product, it's going to have to be through the link. Okay, okay. Well, watch this space. We await the Link Rainbow version <laughs> following along quite quick. Rainbows for everyone. Rainbows and unicorns for everybody. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's, I draw the line at unicorns, sir. Hey, wait a minute. You're criticizing. The unicorn is a national animal of Scotland. Uh, so there you go. Explain you know it that. Does, it doesn't exist, but your country <laughs> does. <laughs> yes, so I think we're the only country in the world. Well, mind you, I suppose Wales has the dragon. Maybe it's a British thing. We like having imaginary animals as our national animal. This explains why you vote for some of the people that you do. <laughs> uh, and what explains why you vote for some of the people that you do? <laughs> oh, I don't vote for them. I, look, right, if there okay. was imaginary characters on the ballot, people would take it. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, damn. Get some characters from classic British literature, put them on the ballot. <laughs> You'll have some interesting uh, people in office. Scrooge McDuck. There you go. Coming to a ballot near you. Scrooge, yes. Yeah. Scrooge McDuck, <laughs> that might be American. Let's be honest. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, go check out the website. Uh, that is us for this week. Gentlemen, what have you got coming up? Anything exciting? What secrets can you reveal? Well, there's a bunch of stuff happening. Bunch of, there's a bunch of independent watchmakers traveling here to Los Angeles sh to show me watches that I've never seen before. They're afraid to ship. These are men attached to timepieces I'm going to see and <laughs> uh, hopefully not a, a, a strange alley somewhere. But I'm excited about that. Showpard is very excited because they're moving a store to the Fifth Avenue location that I think has been very exciting for them. So they had a Madison Avenue store. 
They're really excited about their their Fifth Avenue store for Chapard. And that's a brand that just keeps doing more and more stuff right now. You know, they they sort of like sit on the on, on the on the side when there's like too much activity, but when things are quiet, they're like they like pop their heads up, be like, oh, it's time for us now. And I love that because there's, you know, you, you have brands that are have been quiet that have been sort of emboldened to do things. And so those are the brands, you know, Jacob and Company is a perfect example. I don't think they'd be doing the stuff they were doing if the Richemont brands were, were you know, uh, not active. And so a lot of us lament that, you know, that a lot of those brands are quiet, but it's actually, uh, you know, allowed for a lot of cool things to be. So I'll be traveling a little bit. What about you guys? I'm traveling to Sweden, you know, two changes. So I have to like fly to Stockholm, but I have to change somewhere, uh, LA or somewhere. I don't even know where, I don't remember. And then it's like all together, door to door, it's like 12 hours to get there, which is kind of ridiculous. And the sun shines on average 30 minutes per day. It's so far up north. And then all together, it's daylight for about four hours. I'm, I'm not that keen on that. And it's minus seven degrees Celsius, you, whatever that is in Fahrenheit. I'm, I think it's low double digits or something like that, but I could be wrong. And then uh, I'm spending three or four days there. And then coming back home, I, I hope it's worth it to travel all the way there. Once I'm there, maybe we will be recording the next podcast actually while I'm there. So uh, I'll try and connect. You're going to Turbion Lagoon. Um, yeah, probably all frozen. <laughs> yeah. What they didn't tell you about Turbion Lagoon is you had to cut your own hole in the ice in order to get into it. I don't it. want to go anymore if it's all frozen. Well, I have something very interesting coming from Oris. So that will not be revealed until the end of the month. But yeah, looking forward to seeing something from, from then. I've already seen the pictures. Looks very impressive. So we shall see what happens. So yeah, do check out the channel. Check out the website. Like, subscribe. Leave us a review. Do all of those things things but other than that it's goodbye from me and goodbye from both of them thanks everyone thanks bye everyone